I'm going to give a couple of announcements, but as I'm doing that, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis in chapter 25. And if you don't have one, there are several in each row for you to follow along. Genesis chapter 25. So a few announcements this morning, just practical things. Um, this next week, some of you might know about a, a football game that's coming up. Maybe some of you. It's, it's a Super Bowl I don't know anything about it other than they're going to be playing some football. And apparently, for those of you that are still watching football, uh, they're Super Bowl. For those of you that aren't, I, I guess you'll probably still eat food. So, <laughs> so it's an opportunity to get together. But our youth are going to be having a Super Bowl party. And they will have a time of fellowship. They'll have food. And it will be here next Sunday from 5 o'clock until the game's over. And then you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So um, anyway, uh, that will be next Sunday. We also today, from 5 to 7, have a youth gathering. We're having them every Sunday on Sunday evenings. And then once a month, we're doing a game night on Saturday night uh, in similar fashion. But it's usually like just mayhem and games and, um, you know, a little bit of competition, a little friendly competition. Um, and so um, trying to think. What else do we have for announcements? The ladies are having a fellowship on Tuesday, February 9th, um, here from 6 to 8 p.m. So bring a snack to share, and uh, we hope you come and join us. Uh, I say we, I don't mean me. I won't be there. Um, and I think that's it. That is all the announcements that are going on. All right, there I go. So Genesis in chapter 25 this morning, where we find ourselves in the book of Genesis, and if you've not been with us, the book of Genesis, the word means the book of beginnings. Genesis means to begin. It's not just a Peter Gabriel song. It's not just a band. And so all of that to say Genesis is where we have the beginning, where God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man. And man, with his free will that God gave him, the very first thing he did was he actually disobeyed God. God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree, this one tree. You could eat of all the other trees. And from that point on, it all went downhill. Man took his free will and he ran with it. And just like a dog on a chain, uh, you give them enough chain and they will choke themselves with it. And man is really no different. We laugh at a dog when they do it because the chain's there. It's been the same length. But mankind seems to do the same thing. And so with this freedom that God give, gave us, we decided that we were going to do our own thing. We know that we were made to worship God, and yet we decide to deny that and do our own thing and make ourselves God in our own lives. And because of that, the fall. And we see this in wars. We see this in nations. We see this in, in strife in our families. Uh, but all of that said, God desires to reconcile him, us back to himself. And so in Genesis 25, we find ourselves where God has made this nation from one man, Abraham. And Abraham has been promised that he will be given descendants and a piece of property that is the nation of Israel. And, and throughout the entire story, what we find is that the guy that God picked was a sinful man. He was a man just like the rest of us who uh, struggled with faith, struggled with making proper decisions. And as he struggles with this, we get to view it from a front row seat. We get 
all of his story written down. We see the good and the bad and the ugly. And so with that being said, I love that because the Bible doesn't um, whitewash its characters. It doesn't tell us to look at the heroes of the Bible. It tells us to look at the God of those failing, faithless, doubting, problem, sin-struck people. And as we see that, as they put their faith in him, we see God creating a nation. So Abram... um, was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And he was given, he, he already had a wife. Her name was Sarai. God renamed her Sarah. He inserted that letter H in the, in the um, Hebrew alphabet, which is actually the letter that stands for grace. And as grace enters their lives, they are made fruitful. The problem is, is that God called Abraham and Sarah to start a nation, but they could not have descendants because they were barren. And so God gets involved, they pray, and over years and years of waiting, God gives them a son. But before he gives them that son, they think, maybe we need to speed up the process a little bit, and we'll do what all of our neighbors do. And so instead of me having the child, I'm going to ask you to take my servant, Sarah said, Hagar. And Hagar will produce a child with you. And as she produces a child, um, she'll give birth to the child while sitting on my knees, and then we'll call it good. We'll call that God's plan. But the problem is, is that God never told Abram to do that. God never told Sarah to do that. He said, through Sarah, I will produce a child that will essentially be the inheritor of these promises I've given to you. And so through this, we see that Abraham has many descendants some are descendants of the flesh and some are the descendants according to the promise. So Abram has a wife, Sarah, but he also has Hagar. And through Hagar, he produces Ishmael. And Ishmael is a work of the flesh that's going to cause them consequences and problems later. And we'll get there. But today what we see is that Sarah passed two chapters ago. Genesis uh, chapter, uh, actually Chapter 23, she dies and he procures property to bury her. And after she passes away, Abram moves on to the next task and he starts to look for a bride for his son Isaac. When he looks for a bride, he sends Eleazar back to his homeland and he gets a bride for Isaac, brings her back. And at the end of chapter 24, what we saw was a wedding. We saw Isaac and Rebekah Uh, They go into one another's tents and they are essentially joined together. What God has put together, let no man separate. It's a wedding. And so with him being married off, with him being comforted after the death of his mother, then we move on to chapter 25 where it says, Abraham again took a wife and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan. This, this is your favorite part of the Bible, right? When they start listing the genealogies and you can barely pronounce them. Mine too. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. I'm butchering these, by the way. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. 
So what we see is Abraham getting married. And when he gets married, what you see is that he produces tons of children, which is interesting because we see that Sarah was actually the one that was barren. Abraham was able to reproduce. And yet what we find out is that God gets involved and makes it possible for a barren woman to give birth. And Sarah, we don't see her ever give birth to another child. My assumption as a man is that they didn't stop trying. My assumption as a married couple is that 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 was part of their relationship. Uh, Apparently, Abraham is still interested in that at this point in his life. And so what we see is that God is very specifically protecting the descendants of Abraham. But Keturah is married to, to Abraham and then has all these children. So there are some Bible scholars that say that actually this happened during the lifetime of Sarah. I don't know. What I do know is that if that is in fact the case, I mean, no doubt he had an extramarital relationship with Hagar. Uh, Perhaps he was hardened to that. I don't know. But if that is in fact the case, and he did have an extramarital relationship, number one, the law from God had not told him yet that polygamy was not okay. That's not an excuse. That's just me saying, as, as God continues to reveal what holiness looks like in the life of a believer, this wasn't specifically stated. Though, in Genesis, it says that a, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, singular. So I do believe that it's God's best for one. But even if that is in fact the case, what I want to point out is that the Bible is not condoning polygamy. Polygamy is not okay, and if you read all the stories about the men of the Bible that have multiple wives, it does not go well for them. It actually becomes worse and worse. It's hard enough to maintain a proper relationship with one person, let alone multiples, and I think married couples in here would probably agree with that. Uh, One's plenty. One can be too much. And so with that being the case, at the same time, the Bible doesn't whitewash its characters. And I'm going to say that over and over again. The Bible doesn't whitewash what really happened. While it doesn't exaggerate, it also doesn't sweep under the rug the truth. And I love that. And so as we see these heroes of the faith, and as we consider the fact that they may or may not have had sin in their life, the Bible teaches that every human being ever existed sinned. Even if it's not written down as a record. And I praise God every time I read the Bible and I go, I'm glad I'm not in that thing because then everybody would get to know my stuff. But as we looked at last week, as the woman at the well came and went back to her town after having talked to Jesus, her praise was, come meet the man that knows everything I've ever done and yet cares about me and loves me. And so verse five continues on and says, and Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. And Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, which is why I'm talking about the fact that may or may not have had uh, concubines. Concubines in the Bible are mentioned and the most uh, extravagant man that had the most concubines and wives was actually King Solomon. He was wise, but he he wasn't necessarily smart. And so he had uh, a thousand between his concubines and his wives. And yet what we see here is that Though he had children, he gave gifts to these children, but he gave all that he had to Isaac, the son of promise. Verse 6, But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, 
And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. He sent them eastward to the country of the east. Makes sense. And so as he sends them away, he's protecting what God has said he will do. He gives all that he has. Imagine this. The father gives all that he has to the son as an inheritance. This is land. This is wealth. He's, he's essentially being treated like the firstborn would be treated in that culture. But also the promises that God has given to Abraham, the promise to make his descendants as many as the stars of the sky, as many of the, as the sand on the seashore. These promises are really the real inheritance that Isaac's getting. The wealth, it's awesome, but it's not everything. The land, it's great, but it's not everything. It's really icing on top of the cake. And so as Abraham gave gifts to the rest and he sent them away, I looked up the word gifts because I'm sitting there going, what did he give them? Did he give them a few trinkets? When he sent Ishmael away, what did he give them? Bread and water. I don't, I don't count that as a gift. I count that as a necessity. But he gave them gifts and the word actually means a present, specifically a sacrificial offering or in some cases a bribe. And so it's like, hey, Here's some money. Get out of my, you know, get out of here. This isn't your land. This is going to be Isaac's. And so he's protecting this son. So I alluded to the fact that there were other sons, uh, but we will look at verse 12 through 18, Ishmael, because Ishmael has been sent off, but we get to kind of tie up the loose ends of what happened to him and how old he was when he died. And then Isaac is specifically talked about, verse 19 through 26. And then we see his descendants after him. And then Keturah is mentioned just now. So in verse 7, it continues on. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. And then Abraham breathed his last and died and it says there, in a good old age, an old man and full of years. Uh, would it be said that we would be able to, all of us, live and then die in a good old age? And really a good old age is the age that God has for us. Jesus was cut off at 33. I believe that the Bible teaches that he was cut off early, but he was full of years. What does it mean to be full of years? Is he being redundant there? Is he talking about the quality of the years that he dwelled on the earth? And, and my prayer is that I wouldn't just get old. We all get old whether or not we try to live righteously. And yet full of years, I believe, means he lived a quality life. He lived a life in the presence of God. His, his life could be summed up by the New Testament where it says that he dwelled in tents and he built altars. He, he dwelled in temporary style while he was on this earth. He, this wasn't his home. He lived as such. But then he also built altars. He spent his life worshiping God and teaching his family to do so as well. And so he died old and with full years. And look at this, verse 9. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, we know about these two descendants from Abraham because the Middle East conflict kind of hinges on this brotherly uh, hatred over one another. 
And yet in the death of their father, they came together to bury him together. Who knows what their relationship was really like? We know what the relationship of their descendants is like. It's, it's pretty volatile. Bombs over Baghdad was a song written about this very conflict. And yet what we have here is we have these two men coming together to bury their father together at Machpelah, which is mentioned in Genesis 23, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite. The field, and it mentions it here, which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. So he's buried with his wife Sarah. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And so I want to point out here that when the burial happens, it seems at least for temporary, Isaac and Ishmael come together and they are reconciled. Even if for just a moment. Reconciliation is a a churchy word, but it means to bring back together what has been broken. God came to the earth to reconcile his relationship between sinful man and holy God. And in the same way, when we are reconciled to God, it has this effect where our relationships with one another are many times healed if we're willing to let God do that. And what's interesting about reconciliation, I think a lot of us have a yearning in our hearts for our broken relationships to be brought back together. Otherwise, there's this dissonance in life. There's this uncomfortableness. There's this brokenness that never feels resolved. I like resolve. I like when it comes together at the end and they lived happily ever after. I like that. I'm not a Disney fan, but I'm, I still like the, the way stories end. And yet what we know about real life is that we love that story because it's not actually normally what happens. But in order for reconciliation to happen, just like this story, uh, someone has to die. In order for Isaac and Ishmael to come together, it seems that they never came back together until their father died. And if you have a broken relationship with somebody... Sometimes one of the two of you, even though you may not die physically, has to die to whatever hill you've been dying on. Let it go. Let it go. If you can give up on that hill that you've planted your flag on, sometimes that's the first step that it takes in order for the other person and you to come back together and at least be reconciled, even though the thing may not be resolved. Is the relationship more important or the argument? This happens in marriage. This happens in sibling rivalries. This happens in families. This happens at work. You know, this is a reality. But Jesus, in order to reconcile us to himself, guess what? We, had, we were at war against God. We were at war against Jesus. And so someone had to die in order for there to be a healing between that relationship, forgiveness. And who was it? It was Jesus. Of all the people that should have died for there to be reconciliation, it should have been me. Not, not the holy one, the sinful one. And yet he said, I will willingly lay down my life. And Pontius Pilate famously, while he's talking to Jesus, said, hey, why don't you just like do something about this? Don't you know I have the power to kill you? And Jesus said, no man kills me. I purposely lay down my life. I'm doing it willingly. 
It was so we could be reconciled to him. And so all that to say, here we are in, in Genesis, now that I'm off of my rabbit trail. And uh, it says, it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. See, Abraham had been a source of blessing for his son his whole life. But what happens when Abraham dies? Then who's going to bless him? Well, he leaves him behind, but he's still in the presence of the God of Abraham, who really is the only source of Abraham's blessings. And so uh, Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahai Roy after that. What's Beer Lahai Roy? Is that some sort of uh, microbrewery? uh, No, Beer Lahai Roy is a location that was mentioned in Genesis chapter 16. Beer in the Old Testament is a well. Usually you'll see a, a well. Beersheba was one of them. It was the well of the oath. Um, Beer Lahai Roy is the well of Hagar. Hagar went and she departed when she found out she was pregnant with Ishmael. And she ran away because Sarah was really mean to her. Imagine that. Why would she be mean? And yet when she gets to a certain spot there in the desert, they're out of water, and the Lord appears to Hagar and says, hey, return to Abraham and Sarah, submit to me, and I will actually give you many descendants. You're not going to die in the desert. And then as she looks and sees her son about, no, that's, I'm fast forwarding, this happens again. Um, She says, truly, I have seen the God who sees me, the God who lives and the God who sees me. And so as he's dwelling there, Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahai Roy, locations matter. He's dwelling in the presence of the God who saw Hagar, the God who sees, and also the God who provided that well in the first place. In in the desert, if there's no water, there's no life. And yet what we find is that he's dwelling in the place of God's provision of the past, and he's also dwelling in the presence of God. And so uh, maybe that could be our prayer for our children, that one day after we die, and Lord willing, hopefully they outlive us, that they would be blessed by God after our death, that they wouldn't live in the past and be locked up in the the mourning of the loss of their parents, but that they would instead live in the sight of the blessing of God and live at the well of his provision, that they would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of their life. And so, verse 12 says, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to have to clear my throat. <coughs> Sorry. Apparently that's a no-no. <coughs> so verse 12. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael. Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael. By their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of brought him wine, and he drank. Woo! Skipped a chapter. These little pages. All right, let me try that again. This is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael, by the names according to their generations. The firstborn was Ishmael. Of Ishmael was Nebajoth, then Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadar, 
Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedemah. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements. Twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael. One hundred and thirty-seven years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go towards Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. So what's interesting here is it lists out these 12 princes that came from Ishmael. And these 12 princes, it's interesting, they kind of mirror the fact that Israel is going to have 12 sons. So from this, we have the birth of the nation of Islam, the religion of Islam, which eventually is the Muslim religion. And so what's interesting is if you read their writings, what they have is they have the same story we read last week, which is, or two weeks ago or three weeks ago, when Abraham offers Isaac on Mount Moriah. But in their writings, it says that Ishmael was the one that was offered on Mount Moriah. And so from there, they look at it as Abraham passed on the promises of God to Ishmael, and he is the rightful one to deserve the nation that was the Canaanite region that became the nation of Israel. So that's the fight. That's the, I have the rights to this land, Jacob does not. And yet in our scriptures, what we see is that Isaac was actually the rightful heir And yet what we have is a perversion of the truth. It's so close, it makes sense if you read it, but it's not the same. And so here we have the beginning of this, and it is the Arab people that descended from Ishmael that actually intend to take that land and call themselves the rightful owners. But what's crazy is that even in our scripture reading this morning, it says that when Ishmael died... He was gathered to his people, and then it lists specifically where they lived. It lists their territory, which is not Israel, but it's instead Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go towards Assyria. So just a little nugget about where Islam came from, and there's way more to it than that, um, but you can study that on your own. Verse 19 This is the genealogy of Isaac. So we have the genealogy from Keturah, then Hagar's descendant Ishmael, and now Isaac in verse 19. Abraham's son, Abraham's uh, begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife. The daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, Because guess what? She was barren. So another wife in this line of descendants that are ultimately going to be the nation through whom God blesses the entire world and brings forth the Messiah. But what's interesting is the first two brides of these first two men that inherit these promises from God, their wives cannot have children. Barrenness. And so... Isaac does what his father did. He prays for his wife because she is barren. And the Lord granted his plea 
and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. God chooses people that are not what they need to be in order to do the things that he's promising to do. I was just watching, um, there's this series on Amazon Prime called uh, Superbook. And for those of you that might have been raised in church culture, it was like a cartoon, but now they've upgraded it so it's CGI. and It's really cool. But in the story of Gideon that we were watching yesterday, Gideon is this man who is threshing on a wine press floor instead of a threshing floor. Because the Midianites, imagine that, we just read about them, descendants of Keturah, the Midianites... The, the raiders were coming in and they were trying to take the land and they were stealing all the food from the Israelites. And so Gideon is hiding in a place you would never thresh wheat because you always do that on top of a hill where the wind is blowing. So when you throw the wheat up in the air, it separates the wheat from the chaff and the chaff will blow away because it's light and the wheat will land because it's got weight. And so while he's threshing wheat on the wine press instead of up on the hill so he won't be seen. And while he's cowering, avoiding being seen by the Midianites, God comes to him and says, O Gideon, man of courage and valor. He calls a man who is, he's scared. He's chicken. His knees are knocking. He's afraid and he's just trying to feed his family. He's just trying to survive. And yet God calls him a man of mightiness and valor. Because God calls that which is not to do the things that he promises to do. And he leads Gideon with 300 men. By the way, way better than the movie, 300. He takes Gideon, who is not a warrior, who is not a mighty man, who is not a soldier with awesome shields, who wasn't raised by wolves, whatever the storyline is from the mythology. But he takes a man and 300 other men. They don't even carry weapons. They break pots open and have torches and trumpets. And they scare away an army of way more than 30,000 men. 300 of them. That's what God does. He relishes to do the impossible because who gets the glory? God does. And so with this woman, she is barren. Uh, her husband Isaac prays. She actually uh, conceives and has twins in her womb. Verse 22. But the children struggled with together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Internal turmoil is not meant to cause you to complain. It's there, or at least allowed to get us so that we will cry out to our creator and ask him, why am I suffering from turmoil from within? And yet she has this physical turmoil. She cries out to the Lord and the Lord reveals to her some things about these particular boys. The Lord said to her, verse 23, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So from these two twins will be birthed two nations. You think, well, that's interesting. Aren't they brothers? Won't they be a part of the same nation? And the reality is, no. Two peoples will be separated from your body. Uh, one shall be stronger 
and the older shall serve the younger. So imagine this. God knows the future of these children before they're born. So I would ask you what I have there for you in my notes. When does life begin? When do you think life begins? When does God think life begins? Apparently, before we are even born, he knows our future. He has plans for that future. He knows what we're going to do instead and rebel against him. He has foreknowledge about each one of us. And yet he chooses the younger, in this case, to serve the older, which is out of the normal circumstances. So what he knows is what's getting ready to be read here. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, which in our vernacular would be Harry. So he already has a nickname. He's now going to be called Harry. And then the other looks nothing like him. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob or Jacob. Uh, in some translations, it says James. But the word means heel catcher. Now, I was the older sibling. I had a younger sibling. I would call my brother cheap shot artist, not heel catcher, but the meaning is the same. He's holding onto his brother's heel and he's always trailing along behind him. He's going to be a cheater. He's going to try to get his way done and he's going to do it by any means necessary. That will be the life of Jacob. Now, when they were born, Isaac was 60 years old. So imagine this. This wasn't two years of barrenness for Rebecca. They started trying to have children <clears throat> at six, or excuse me, they were married at 40 and they were not able to have children until they were 60. And so this wasn't just a couple years. This was 20 years of barrenness. So God reveals to her there will be two nations. And then he knows the plans that he has for them. And then we go on in verse, um, let's see, 27. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. And it makes sense. He's hairy, right? That's the perfect conditions. He doesn't have to wear a lot of camo. And Esau said to Jacob, Excuse me, Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me anyway? He's a little he's a little dramatic. He's been out hunting. He's really hungry, and he's about to die. I mean, seriously? But that's what he's saying. He says, I'm about to die. What do I care about this silly birthright? So then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and then he ate and drank, arose, and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So he, he sold his birthright, not just for a bowl of stew, 
but it's vegetarian stew. Like, what in the world? Somebody's got a priority problem. But in here we see the, the personalities coming out of these two men. Esau's nickname is Harry. His other nickname is Edom, or Red. He's a man's man. He's a man of the field. Later on, uh, Isaac's going to be blind and he's going to be trying to tell the difference between his two sons and he's going to sniff his son and he's going to smell the outdoorsy smell and immediately know it's Esau and not Jacob. Um, he's also, we find out, dad's favorite. Imagine that. He's going to be dad's favorite, not because he's a hunter, but because of how tasty his wild game is. And then we have Jacob on the other end of the spectrum. We got Mr. T, uh, Esau, and we got Mr. Rogers on the other end. Meek and mild, easygoing. And so um, Jacob is called heel catcher or supplanter. He sets traps. He's shifty, if you will. Um, But the word there, it says that he was a, uh, let's see. His brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. But then you go down and it says somewhere in here. Oh, there it is. Verse 26. His brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. I can't find it. Where is it? In here it describes Jacob. And it says, oh, there it is. Verse 29. Jacob cooked a stew. No, it's not. This is one of those times where I just like completely lose concentration. And I'm like, what in the world was I thinking when I wrote these notes down? Thank you, Joy. You are my favorite now. So the boys grew. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man. And so when we think about a mild man, some of yours might say that he's fair or that he's simple or even uh, plain. Uh, boring. But the idea is that he was complete. He was perfect. And we think of perfect, we go, man, he's got a chiseled jaw. He's shaved his face like he's a good looking kid. He's got the dimples. Uh, but with all of that said, uh, perfect here actually means that, that, that he was too cleaned up, if you will. Uh, you might remember the story of King David. King David was known as being ruddy and handsome. You think, well, that's awesome. But in their culture, you wanted to look hard and mean. And so you wouldn't want to send a ruddy, handsome young man to your battle. Uh, He was actually fair-skinned, and he was kind of cleaned up. He didn't look like he could even work hard. He probably didn't even have calloused hands because he was a cook. He, He did housework with his mom. And so all that said, because of that, he was his mom's favorite. Mommy's little boy. So verse 29 through 32, we see that the manly man lives up to his name. But we also see, as in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, that those who are profane, many times their God is their appetite. What rules over them is their desire. And what we see in Esau is a man who cares more about what his stomach feels like than what he's going to inherit in the long term. He's only thinking about short-term gain. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we see this spoken of about Esau. Chapter 12 in verse 15. 
We'll start in verse 14. It says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Look carefully, lest any one of you, he's talking to believers, fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be someone among you who is a fornicator or a profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his inheritance or his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing from his father, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He was a profane man, and by the time he wanted the blessing from his father, not only did he not obtain it, but he wasn't worthy of it. He was a sinful man. Um, but these type of people, they only think about immediate gratification. And I think that there are some believers that look at life like this. Hey, look, I'm saved. I'm good. I got my ticket punched to heaven. What does it matter if I do this, that, or the other? But the reality is we could, for temporary pleasure, actually despise our birthright, our inheritance from Jesus Christ. Do you not know that we will inherit the heavens that will be rulers with Christ on his seat? And therefore, we should live like that as if it were already obtained, lest we fall short of God's grace, lest we cause the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme God based on our lifestyle and the way that we live. Esau was like that. And then there's Jacob, verse 33 and 34. He's the heel catcher. He lives up to his name. He takes advantage of his brother. So he's not much better. He sees that his brother will do anything to get food in his belly. And so because of that, he says, I'll give you the stew. I cooked it. If you give me something that is precious to me. And so he says, give me your birthright. And yet what we see already in the blessing uh, and when God reveals this to Rebecca in verse 23, he says there, the older shall serve the younger. So did God choose Jacob because he was good or did he choose Jacob because he knew ahead of time, he has foreknowledge, he knows how Jacob will respond. And I would say yes, both. That God chose you for salvation before you were born and it's proven on whether or not you are chosen based on your response to the free gift of salvation. Do you respond and say, yes, that's me, I want that? Uh, please, Lord, I, I confess to you that I'm a sinful human being. I need your grace to save me. I want to turn away from my wicked ways and follow you. I want to believe what Jesus teaches, and I want to follow him. Or are you the person that goes, nah, I'd rather hold on to this bowl of soup. Maybe it's not a bowl of soup for you. Maybe it's a lifestyle. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a sinful habit that, that is keeping you from going, I need to go all in for Jesus. Uh, whatever it might be, there are two categories. There are Esau's who are offered the birthright, and there are Jacob's who take it willingly. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be a heel catcher. I'd rather take full advantage if I can scheme and get what God has for me, give it to me. I don't care what people call me. Call me a heel catcher. Call me a cheap shot artist. Call me 
<laughs> redeemed. And so all that said, God chooses us. So what does this all mean? I want to take us back to what I said at the beginning. That God, the Father, as Father Abraham gave all that he had to the Son as an inheritance, so also God the Father has given to his Son all things. Turn with me to John chapter 17. I'm just going to highlight that as we close. The Old Testament, even though these men are sinful and there are stories that take place, all the time there's allegory, there's understanding, there's foreshadow, there's pictures, there's types of what God's going to do in the redemption story for the world. And what we see in chapter 17 of John is we see this high, high priestly prayer of Jesus. And over and over we see the, pray, the phrase that Jesus prays, you have given me. So Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you as you have given him authority, just like Abraham gave Isaac authority over all flesh and he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with your servant, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. See, Jesus was with him before creation. The Trinity all got together somehow in the Godhead and discussed who will go and redeem mankind. And Jesus said, I will. And the Spirit says, I'll go. And I will lead. And the Father says, I'll be glorified. And they all played a role. But then verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. That's where the inheritance comes from. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. Jesus came... And he spoke the words that the Father gave him to speak. Jesus didn't have anything that he wasn't given so that he could give it to us. His words are truth. They are life. They, they, they are the words of the same words that created. And they have received them, it says, and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them, Jesus says, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Did you know that you're his? If you've been given to the Father through Jesus, you're his. I love that. Now, you might be somebody that says, nobody owns me. I'm my own person. That's sad. <laughs> Everybody's somebody's. I'm the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we also are the Lord's. And Jesus has bought us back. Do you know that? He's bought us back from the slavery of sin. So no, we're no longer, it, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And as we do baptism, we're, baptism doesn't save anybody. Baptism is a public declaration. I'm the Lord's. 
I, I, the perfect picture. We go down in the water. What happens to somebody if they go down in the water, by the way, and they don't come up? They die. There ain't no oxygen. We, can't, we don't have gills. It's not water world. It's over. But, but in that, when we die, we're surrendering to Jesus. Jesus said, if anybody would follow after me, he must first deny himself, take up his cross. The cross was a death instrument and follow me. Die to yourself and then be raised by the power of the resurrection. And it's a declaration that I believe it's I've died and now Jesus is living in me. So because he's living in me, I'm alive and it's no longer I who live, but it's the power of the resurrection. And I'm also proclaiming that when I die, I will be raised again to the newness of life. It's a statement of faith, but it's also a statement of obedience. Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the good news. Baptizing and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you. Because Jesus spoke King James. So lo, or look, pay attention, I will be with you even until the end of the age. And so Lord Jesus, we thank you for the life of Jesus. We thank you for the life of Abraham. We thank you for the descendant, Isaac, who was given two children, Jacob and Esau. And yet even in that story, we see Jacob, a sinful man in need of forgiveness and redemption. And we're going to see that played out over the next several weeks. But in the meantime, Lord, we thank you for the fact that you bought us, that Isaac inherited what God gave them and the land, the abundant life, the wealth, the riches in Christ are all afforded to us because Jesus inherited everything that the Father gave him. And he sent everyone else away. He divided the sheep and the goats. And we are those sheep. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for the promises. Thank you for our future and our hope. Thank you for choosing us, even though you knew us ahead of time, and what we would do with our bodies and our minds and our thoughts and our actions and what we would do to other people. Thank you for saving us anyway. Thank you for paying the price. Thank you for bleeding and dying on our behalf. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.